good evening. We are the Faith Builders Ministry Team, and uh, when I say we, I'm including myself, really. I, I feel grateful to have with me tonight the real ministry team, which is composed of the general study student, the teacher apprentices, and those in the Christian ministries tracks of study at Faith Builders. These are the students who have already studied with us for very nearly two years. And it's very nearly because in three weeks, this is the graduating class of Faith Builders. Um, in this, these two years, they've, they've worked to study history. They've studied science and Bible, theology, literature. They've practiced in this arena, whether it's in ministry or in teaching or preparing for college. They've practiced in that arena teaching under the wing of an experienced teacher or ministering to local needs, thinking about global needs, or working as interns with, uh, with some established ministry. All of this in preparation for faithful service. So that's our hope for our students at Faith Builders is that they will be equipped for faithful students. And I think I'm representing these folks fairly when I say that that's the hope that they have, is preparation at Faith Builders for faithful service. So we as staff at, at Faith Builders, we've invested two years into these students. And that's two years of a lot of content, too. A lot of facts, a lot of knowledge about history, about science, about teaching. And uh, we've impressed, we pushed on them volumes of reading, hours of lecture, and many hundreds of pages of written content that we've required back from them. The saying goes that uh, impression, this impression of all of that content, impression without expression leads to depression. So we don't want our students to be depressed, and this is really what ministry team is all about. With all of that impression we've given, all that content we've given, this is a chance for them to turn around and to articulate back to a community that supported them. What have they been hearing? What's significant? What's mattered to them in their two years of study? It's my job to facilitate their expression. And I enjoy that part of my job. I, I get to help them schedule a little bit. I help them to form this program and give an outline to it, give a focal point and a theme. But the content that you're hearing tonight is all theirs. The team effort between me as their instructor and them as a class. The result is a tapestry. It's a presentation that's not quite so cleanly put together as you might expect for say a choir program or, or a sermon. There's a thread here, a patch there, a glimpse of the bigger picture and its completion there. But that bigger picture is, is not immediately apparent, and especially if, if you don't have the outline in front of you, it's not immediately apparent how this is all working together to make a whole presentation. So observe tonight. Watch, listen, make connections between the different components that are being spoken of. Pay attention to the parts that are ambiguous that aren't quite so clear. There might be something there for you. Join with us in worship as we, as a team, 
respond to the question, what then shall we do? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken, so he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. For out of the heart, comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, 
his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There's no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are broken people, and we offer two stories of brokenness. She grew up in a conservative Anabaptist home. It wasn't perfect, but it was good. She loved her church, and she loved her friends. But slowly, things began to change. When she joined the youth group, she began to question everything she had been taught. Her new friends tried to persuade her to do things behind her parents' backs. She saw people doing things that she knew weren't right, but pretending on Sundays that they had everything together. Trust in important relationships was broken. The people in her church forgot what it meant to love each other. And then she started having bad dreams almost every night until she was afraid to go to sleep. And no matter how hard she prayed, they didn't stop. But nobody noticed her pain. And because she didn't know how or who to trust anymore, she learned to hide it, and she got really good at it. During the day, she laughed, but at night, when she was alone, she cried until she couldn't breathe. The pain of a broken world, and broken people, and her own brokenness 
made her hard. One night, in her desperation for relief, and her wish to control just one way the pain came, she made a decision. She took a knife out of a drawer and laid it on her wrist and took a deep breath. I met Randy last fall. Randy had grown up in a Christian setting, married a godly wife, and he became involved in a church community. A few years before I had met Randy, he had suffered a back injury at work, and as a result of this injury, went through numerous surgeries. And for months, he took medication in an effort to manage the excruciating pain caused by his injury and the surgeries. Randy eventually found himself addicted to these pain pills. He lost his job. He found himself unable to think clearly. And during an argument and a fit of rage, he murdered someone that he knew very well. Randy is now facing 17 years in a state prison, living with hardened criminals. His wife has disowned him wanting to cut off all contact with him, and also trying to prevent their children from having any interaction with an incarcerated father. During my interaction with Randy, he shared that one of his most difficult struggles during his time in prison has been realizing that his own children, some of them already teenagers, will grow up without a daddy. He explained to me that he and his wife had adopted two young girls just prior to his back injury. And as he showed me pictures of these girls and his other children that he cares about deeply and loves, I saw in his face and heard in his voice a picture of remorse, pain, brokenness. And we asked, is this fair? God allows an injury that results in excruciating pain. A Christian man, in an attempt to manage the pain, uses pills, and after becoming addicted, ends up killing somebody. Well, as we've seen, one need not look far in order to see the brokenness of man. But one need not only look around to see it. If he looks in himself, he sees it much more directly. So what makes not only the world, but even ourselves, broken? I'm going to be borrowing a lot from Blaise Pascal. He was a 17th century philosopher who was living during a time when the world was shifting from Christianity to deism or secular humanism, in which they were saying, man no longer needs God. He can find truth on his own. He can live a worthwhile life on his own. And Pascal, he was appalled. He said, no, that is not true. Man is not capable. He doesn't have the tools to find truth on his own. And he's not cap cap capable of living a life of any sort of value. 
man is broken. And Pascal gives three ways in which he is broken. First, he is self-centered. Second, he's miserably ignorant. And third, he's helplessly caught between the infinite spheres stretching out on either side of him. So first, man is self-centered. We pursue glory for ourselves. We sorely covet the limelight. Even in church, we, we have struggled to worship solely to the glory of God. We lead singing, hoping people will think us a good musician. We give a devotional, hoping people will be impressed with our exegesis. Moreover, we mistrust our true identity in order to get glory. So we put on imaginary identities. We try to be someone we're not in order to make a good impression. Pascal says, cheerfully, we would be cowards if that was the way we could acquire a reputation for bravery. We would even die gladly, provided people talked about it. We're self-centered. Now, if man's self-centeredness is, not, is insufficient in demonstrating his brokenness, surely his ignorance will provide us ample proof. Man is ignorant. He does not think about what matters. Pascal says there's three things that man should think about, and these are the really important things. He doesn't think about himself. That's the first thing. He does not think about himself in good ways. Second thing he doesn't think about is transcendence. He doesn't think about whether there's a God in charge of the universe. And third, he definitely doesn't think about death. Man will one day die, and there is nothing he can do about it. Yet, he does not live in light of this fact. He lives in ignorance. We're professional distractors. We get caught up in social media, sports, news, and other things that aren't inherently wrong in themselves, but are often used to distract from any sort of introspection or any sort of valuable interaction with the world around us. Man is ignorant. So now we move to Pascal's third point. Man is not only self-centered and ignorant, he has no power over his fate. He's caught between the infinite spheres. And what do I mean by infinite spheres? Let's first think about the infinite in terms of space. Let's zoom out from where we are. And let's go to outer space. This is one of the planets in outer space, and that little blue dot, that is Earth. This is within our solar system, and Earth is just what's called a pale blue dot. It's really, really small. And this is in our solar system. Even beyond our solar system is this infinite, never-ending space. We're incredibly small. As much as we'd like to assume our world is big and important, it doesn't really look that way from space. So, now let's zoom in back into that pale blue dot on which we find ourselves. Let's go to the really, really small, the atom. The atom makes up matter. So, if you can um, imagine with me that you're inside an atom, that you're a little smaller than the nucleus, you're standing on top of the nucleus of the atom at the very center, and you're looking around you, what you would see is a huge abyss of space. Atoms are small. We tend to think that there's a bunch going on in there, but actually, atoms are 99.99% space. That's why scientists say things like this podium are mostly space, because they're made up of atoms that are 99% space. So, we, so we're caught between an infinite abyss stretching way beyond us, never-ending, 
and an infinitesimal or very small abyss that goes forever and ever smaller within matter, within our very own bodies. So are we important in light of these infinites? So that's the infinite in terms of space. Let's look at time. Time stretches out on either side of us. It goes forever and ever that way, has no beginning, and it goes forever and ever this way with no end. And in comparison to this infinite timeline, we're just this little blip on the screen. Our little 70 to 100 year slot isn't very big when compared to all of time. We are incredibly unimportant when compared to the infinite, and we're left wondering, does the infinite care about me? What will it do with me after death? Will it take full existence away from me? Will it annihilate me? Or will it, dare I ask, give me an eternal existence? Will I be more than just this little blip on the screen? Will I stretch out a little further? And if it does give me an eternal existence, what kind of existence will it give me? We have no power over these things. We are at the mercy of the infinite. That's why Pascal says, the eternal silence of the infinite spaces fills me with dread. So we've taken a look at Pascal's assessment of post-fall, pre-redeemed man. And the analysis is quite bleak. Man is too caught up in his trivial idols to see his own wretchedness. We're incredibly broken. We're by no means holy. We're not worthy to stand before God. In fact, we're utterly separated from him. And now we stand at the edge of the abyss that yawns out in front of us. How will we cross over into the promised land? Due to our brokenness, the chances are quite small. So what shall we do? Would God stoop to such people as ourselves. If you're anything like me, by about this time in the program, you're feeling like someone just tossed a noose out there, and now they're starting to pull it tight around your neck. Stories and scripture, like the ones we've just heard, make us uncomfortable. We don't like to hear them because they remind us that we're in trouble. And it's important for us to remember, these stories aren't just somehow representative of everyone else out there. They're representative of the brokenness and the sin of me and you. The fact that we're broken feels just a little bit like a punch in the stomach. You can just feel that little wave of horror. We deserve nothing. And the question is left hanging in the room like a foreboding shadow. What shall we then do? Does God stoop to people such as us? Now, people have dealt with this question long before just us. The Philippian jailer, on recognizing his brokenness, called out to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what shall I do to be saved? Paul answered out of his mercy, and the Philippian jailer said, Yes, God is merciful. Paul, on the road to Damascus, fell on his knees, recognizing his futile existence, and he said, God, what can I do? God responded out of his mercy, and Paul is able to say, yes, God is merciful. 
John the Baptist gave a scathing report to the crowds at Jordan. He told them, you guys are a brood of vipers destined for destruction. They responded desperately, what then can we do? John the Baptist responded out of God's mercy, and those people were able to say, yes, God is merciful. Those people all chose to say, yes, God does stoop to us. Yes, we are given hope. Our brokenness is not our end. God, in the midst of our ugly depravity, extends his merciful redemption. And it's in light of this mercy that God extends us, that the Philippian jailer, Paul, the crowds of Jordan, and so many other people have raised the question that we want to talk about tonight. What then shall we do? Now that's a little bit vague, and we will hope to add just a little bit of meat to that question by focusing in three specific areas. First, what shall we do in light of God's mercy? Secondly, what shall we do with our new position in Christ? And finally, what shall we do with God's new community? So we've been observing the brokenness of man. And for those of us who read the Old Testament, we quickly realize that God begins to act in mercy towards his people. So we're going to look at three examples of God's mercy towards his people in the Old Testament. But I'm going to need your help. So I'm going to read an example. And then we're going to respond as an audience to the example as a way of validating and acknowledging God's act of mercy. I'm going to post a verse on the PowerPoint and we'll all respond. So my first example, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And the Lord said, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's go away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. 
That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So let's respond together. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. We go on to the second example. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back for or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you were sp- have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrown when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's respond together. For if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And my final example. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast into the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the Lord. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was the evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. 
Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And finally, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercy, did not forsake them in the wilderness. A cloud to lead them in the way did not depart for them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. We now invite you to join us in singing two hymns of God's mercy. They're on PowerPoint, but if you wish, you can turn in your hymnals to number 779. And please stand with me. We'll sing verses 1 and 3 of this first one. Next one is number 973 in your hymnals. Come ye disconsolate. 
Imagine with me that you do not know that our God is a merciful God. For many people throughout history, this has been the reality. They believe in gods and goddesses that have, these gods and goddesses have stood and watched as humanity has struggled and suffered. Instead of caring, they've been apathetic. And meanwhile, these poor humans are trying to get the gods' attention, calling to them for help. The gods may respond in apathy or self-serving interest. Imagine living in that reality, serving gods that don't care or else they work against you and what your wishes are. Now imagine God, our God, the true God, who he does use justice when he needs to, but at the same time, he uses mercy. He loves to use mercy. It is through mercy that God awakens the potential for redemption in our broken humanness and in broken situations. The story of Adam and Eve is a great example of this. Adam and Eve blew it. They messed up in such a way that sin entered the world and trouble entered, brokenness entered. But God used that opportunity to ultimately lead to redemption. His goal was not to destroy humanity. His goal was to redeem and make new. Even, even though humans have and continue to make mistakes and to go against God, and we suffer the results, the brokenness in the world, God continues to offer mercy. But somebody, throughout all these years, as the brokenness gets worse and worse, somebody had to change the situation. It couldn't be any of us. No human was capable of doing this because we're all broken. We're a mess. We're guilty. We're sinless. We're too weak. So what would happen if another being could come and take on the consequences of this brokenness on himself? Next, we have a story for the children. So... The children can make their way up front here and sit on the floor. Sorry, the students were so rough that the teachers quit 
In one year, the naughty students have run off two or three teachers. A young lady just out of college heard about this class. I would like to apply for the job. Young lady, do you know what you're asking for? You're asking for an awful teacher. Every teacher that's taught there gives nothing to teach. I'll risk it. Let me try. Okay, okay. Who are Good you? Morning. My name is Miss Susanna. I came to be your teacher. What? I've had a couple of those over the years. <laughs> Now, we want to have a good school, but I realize I cannot have a good school by myself, so I need your help. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. If we're going to have a good school, we're going to need some rules. I hate rules. I'm not making any rules. You okay, guys are making cool rules. I will let the rules up to you. Well... You said we can make the rules. Right. You call them out, and I'll write them on the board. Be kind. It's a common one. Good. Be kind. No picking on the girls. <laughs> no picking on the girls. No stealing. I hate when people steal stuff from me. No stealing. Be on time. We need to enforce them somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, we always enforce them. So, what, how are we going to punish the person that breaks these rules? Oh, beat them, beat them on the back. Uh, hit, them, hit them ten times across the back with a big stick. Without a coat on. <laughs> ten times, yeah, ten times across the back with a big stick. Now, class, that is a pretty harsh rule. Do you agree to that? Yeah. All right, ten times across the back without a coat on. Yeah. All right, we're ready to start. Everything went well for two or three days. The children played outside. They played tag and catch.
That is, uh, if, if I may, uh, I, I, I'd like to take little, little Jim's punishment uh, for him. Well, there is a certain law that says you can substitute for another. Is the rest of the class in agreement? Yeah, I'd, I'd like that. Very well. the question has been asked a number of times, what shall we do with God's mercy? I would like to focus this question on God's mercy shown to us through Jesus. We'll be reading scriptures. The scriptures come under five different headings, and each heading is focused on one aspect of how God's mercy is shown to us through Jesus. Any scripture in bold print, we'll read together as a group, and I'll be reading the scriptures that are not in bold. So again, we ask, what shall we do with our new position in Christ? The scriptures we'll look at hopefully answer this question. In light of God's mercy to us, we have a new position. Instead of passively accepting this mercy, God calls us, to fill an important role in his kingdom. <clears throat> the first set of scriptures focuses on 
Jesus becoming a curse for us. Again, join me in reading any bold print scripture. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Our next set of scriptures will be focused on looking at God's mercy to us, shown by forgiveness of sins through Jesus. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our next set of scriptures focus on Jesus, the reconciler between God and man. Together, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Together, and we who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. Next set of scriptures focuses on God's mercy to us, shown through Jesus' blood that enables confidence and cleansing. Therefore, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the last set of scriptures, focusing on the way of righteousness through Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Throughout history, Anabaptists have attempted to show God's mercy to others, even when wronged. We have two stories to demonstrate this. Just over 50 years ago, in the country of Colombia, Tulio Pedraza and his wife joined Colombia's first Mennonite church. Tulio was a coffin maker, and he built a successful business even though he was blind. However, during this period, Protestants were oppressed and looked down on from authorities and their neighbors, but especially through the influence of the Catholic Church. The local Catholic priest, upon hearing Tulio's conversion, declared that his coffins were unfit for any Catholics to be buried in. He also refused to officiate any funeral that used a coffin produced by the Mennonite. Tulio's business plummeted, but it got even worse. The Catholic priest invited another coffin maker to move into the town. He even supplied him with tools and a house in an effort to put Tulio out of business. Tulio was forced to close his business, but... When he did, in an act of mercy, he sold his tools to his rival coffin maker. He and his wife did anything they could to make a living. They tried to start a bakery. They tried raising chickens. They tried candle making, but with little success his, because his skill was really in carpentry. On top of their financial struggles, he and his wife and their children were repeatedly harassed and threatened. His children were humiliated at school. Businesses refused to sell to them. One, one night, him and his wife were even forced to spend a night at the local school for fear um, 
of harassment. In 1964, 15 years after his baptism, Tulio died. But the story wasn't quite over yet. His rival coffin maker actually donated a coffin for Tulio's burial and even attended the ceremony risking his reputation. I'm going to be reading this next story to you. It's about an Anabaptist man named Dirk Willems, and it takes place in the Netherlands in the mid-16th century. It is nine o'clock in the evening, and Hartog stands in the shadows of a small street, which give him a good view of the building opposite him, a small building with an outside stairway leading to the second story. His mission? Capture Dirk Willems, who has escaped the, the grasp of the state many times before. The state is determined to get Willems this time. Consequently, they even have gone as far as forcing Hartog to swear and make an oath that he will catch Willems this time. He blows on his hands and rubs them as he waits in the cold night, determined not to let the cold keep him from his mission. Before long, a man and a woman approach the building on the opposite side of the street. He looks closely, trying to see if the man fits the description he has been given. He does have a beard, he thinks to himself. This could be Willems. The man and the woman go up the stairs, and soon Hartog sees a candle glowing in the second-story window. Satisfied with his stakeout, he turns his thoughts to getting out of the bitter cold. But while he is stepping out of the shadows, he suddenly sees another figure coming down the street. He bolts back into the shadows, cursing under his breath. How could I have been so careless? He can only hope that the man has not seen him. As the man draws near, near him, he stops as if he is listening, and then he goes up the stairs into the lit room. Soon Hartog carefully makes his way to an alehouse, and after several hours and a few drinks in the alehouse, Hartog returns to his observation point in the narrow street. But as he is settling back into his spot, his eyes catch catches a movement at the end of the street as a man disappears around the corner. With no more than a split-second hesitation, Hartog sprints out of his hiding place and runs down the street after him. Around the corner, he sees the figure hurrying ahead of him, casting glances back over his shoulders. It has got to be Williams, he thinks to himself. Acting on instinct, Hartog stealthily follows Willems, keeping to the doorways and shadows until they reach the edge of town. When Willems reaches the edge of town, he begins to sprint across the open field only staying a few yards in front of Hartog. That's when, ahead, Hartog sees the small stream, one of the many small streams crisscrossing through the countryside, frozen by the long weeks of winter. He sees Willems hesitate, then steps cautiously onto the ice. The man glances over his shoulder as he sees Hartog gaining on him rapidly and makes his decision, slipping badly as he scurries across the ice. Hartog hesitates, but is reminded that the state will have his head if he does not catch this man, and he leaps out onto the ice, sprinting after him. Suddenly, a sharp cracking sound makes its way to Hartog's ears. Simultaneously, black water closes over his head. He struggles to the top, grasping for something solid, but when he grabs for the ice, it only breaks away. He begins grasping, yelling, help, somebody help. As he breaks out of the water, almost out of strength, he hears a calm voice saying, don't panic, sir. Grab a hold of my coat. Hartog grabs a hold of the coat. Good, good, the man above him responds. Now don't fight, just hang on. Willems has laid out across the ice, extending his jacket to help pull the man out of the water. 
When they are both safe on the shore, Hartog stands beside Willems, his jaw clenching and unclenching. No one says a word. A wind whips up, and Hartog is suddenly aware of his wet clothes and a deep chill. Abruptly, he turns, grasps Willems by his arm, and pushes him towards a footbridge in the distance. I invite you to uh, sing this song with me. Take note that it's probably a different tune from what you're used to, um, but we will be singing unison for verse 1. Please remember we're skipping verse 3 as well. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Skip verse 3. I'm sorry. Jesus, the joy of Love to Vinyl Loves Excelling, you can turn to that in your books, number 232. Please stand for this song. Number 232. Here again, we'll be skipping verse 3. 
we've come a long way. We began by recognizing our original position, broken and in darkness. And then we're struck by the blinding reality of a God that calls us out of our darkness and shows us this incredible, unprecedented mercy. And then he makes it tangible. In the culminating act of mercy, God sends his son to be the living and the dying messenger of God's mercy to man. No longer is God merely covering sins with the blood of animal sacrifices. No longer is he winking at the the disobedience of ignorance. Rather, through Jesus, we are completely cleansed and actually given a new position in him. But God's mercy is much bigger than simply saving us from the consequences of our sins. In him, we enter into God's new economy of extravagant generosity. He pours out mercy and unmerited favor on his people. As his kingdom of priests, we have direct access to God's mercy and are then enabled to show that mercy to other people. As God's children, we are recipients of his father love and then are empowered to pass that love on to other people, calling them into that family. So what is our new position? Each one of us is a priest, each a son of God, and we are the people of God. Only when we allow ourselves to accept God's gift of mercy to us individually are we able to translate that into a life of showing mercy to other people? And somehow, somewhere in this process of transaction is born a new community of people who are living in mercy towards each other. So our new position in Christ has led to the formation of a new community. Through Christ, God ordained a new community, and why did he do this? Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Philippians 2. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Ephesians 5, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 2, 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In light of God's purpose for the church, this is how the new community is possible. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This new community is enabled by our actions. A predominant theme in the New Testament is love that flows out of a relationship with Christ. Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Galatians 5. Through love serve one another, for the whole law is filled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Colossians 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him.
central to the early Anabaptist system of beliefs was their view of the church as a pure church separated unto God. This found expression through three specific emphases. First, that of a voluntary church. Second, that of a loving church. And third, that of a suffering church. The early Anabaptists believed in a complete separation of church and state. They saw Zwingli's willingness to collaborate with the church council as apostasy. To the Anabaptists, the joining of oneself voluntarily to the church through adult baptism was indispensable, um, an indispensable aspect of the true church. Balthasar Hoopmeyer states the importance of a voluntary commitment to the body of Christ and its intimate connection with believer's baptism when he states, and I quote, after man has inwardly and in faith surrendered himself to the new life, he confesses it openly and externally before the Christian church into which he allows himself to be inscribed according to the order and establishment of Christ. In doing so, he indicates to the Christian church that he has been so taught inwardly in the word of Christ, and that he is so minded that he has already surrendered himself according to the word, will, and rule of Christ to live henceforth for him, to regulate all his actions according to him, to fight under his flag unto death, and to allow himself to be baptized with external water in which he publicly confesses his faith and intention. To the Anabaptists, then, a true church was inconceivable apart from a voluntary and individual commitment. Second, the Anabaptists emphasized a loving church. They were a group of voluntary believers committed to the well-being of each other and committed to living out the truth, not through coercion, but through daily self-sacrifice. Michael Sattler. Further, dear fellow members in Christ, you should be admonished not to forget love, without which it is not possible that you be a Christian congregation. You know that love is through the testimony of Paul, our fellow brother. He says, love is patient and kind, not jealous, not puffed up, not ambitious, seeks not its own, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, rejoices in the truth, suffers everything, endures everything, believes everything, hopes everything. If you understand this text, you will find the love of God and of neighbor. If you love God, you will, re you will rejoice in the truth and will believe, hope, and endure everything that comes from God. If you love your neighbor, you will not scold or ban zealously will not seek your own, will not remember evil, will not be ambitious or puffed up, but kind, righteous, generous in all gifts, humble and sympathetic with the weak and imperfect. For the Anabaptists, loving both one's brother and one's neighbor was inseparable from loving Christ. Thirdly, the Anabaptists believed in a, a group of committed believers should be willing to lay down their life for the sake of each other and, if necessary, to be baptized in blood. 
Hans Hoot says this, Whoever will not follow the footsteps and ways of Christ will not carry the cross of Christ and will not follow the cross of Christ. He does not have or know the Son. Menno Simons had this to say, We know very well, dear brethren, how that this cross seems to be to the flesh grievous, harsh, and severe, and in the present is not considered a matter of joy, but rather of sorrow, even as Paul says, but since it contains within itself so much profit and delight, that in it, I'm sorry, in that it constantly adds to the pious and turns them away from the world and the flesh, makes them revere God and his word, and since it is also the Father's holy will that by it the saints should be approved and the pretender exposed in his hypocrisy, therefore all the true children of God are prepared to love, to do the will of the Father, rejoicing in it. The Anabaptists believed in daily suffering to be God's purifying work for the individual. In conclusion, the Anabaptists emphasized a voluntary loving and suffering church. This set them apart from the rest of the Reformers. We would like to share two songs with you. We've been talking about community and what our vision is, as specifically as Anabaptists, how we're to interact. Our first song is called One is the Body, and it borrows heavily from two of the passages that were read. The one is Ephesians 4, that says there's one body and one spirit. And the other one is Romans 12, that says there's one body but many members. And Christ is the head of that body. This first song is, uh, the lyrics are derived from those two passages.
The next song may not seem to be about church and brotherhood and fellowship. It's called Lay Me Low. It's a very simple but dangerous prayer. We ask God to lay us low or lower us for sure in our own sight and probably in the sight of others too. So that, as the song says, where the Lord can find me, where the Lord can own me, where the Lord can bless me. I invite you to pray with us this prayer of asking God to do what it takes in our life so that in community we're able to interact because we are smaller in our own sight.
It's exciting to read scripture, sing songs, and hear stories depicting the type of community Christ envisioned for his believers. We're inspired by our forefathers and their sacrifice, humility, and suffering they exemplified for us. And it's through looking at these things that we've tried to answer our three original questions. That is, what are we going to do in light of God's mercy? What shall we do with our new position in Christ? And what shall we do with God's new community? We've concluded that in light of God's mercy, we too need to be extending mercy to other people. And here's the thing. This mercy can't just stop with non-retaliation, right? It needs to go beyond that to an act of love, to redemption, to healing. We've explored how Jesus is the one through his suffering, through his sacrifice, that makes all of this possible for us. And that our new position in Christ leads to the formation of a new community of mercy. God's purpose in his new community is to reveal his glory to all people. So in light of our brokenness that we've come from, the grace of God and the fellowship he wants with us, we're left with a challenge. What is he calling from you? What will you do to draw others into God's new community of mercy? The challenge stands before us. What will we do to draw others into God's community of mercy? And so, I pose three multiple-choice questions to you tonight. These questions pertain to North American Anabaptists. Please don't overthink your responses. Trust what you initially think. I'm going to put the question up on the, the PowerPoint. I'd like for you to raise your arm for the one that you think best answers the question. Don't worry about what your neighbor is voting for. In this case, trust your initial response. So let's go. Number one. What is the primary area of strength within the Anabaptist circles? As you look around you, what do you see as the primary area of strength? Is it A, family life? Is it B, separation from the world? Is it C, a holistic lifestyle? Or is it D, humanitarian aid? I'll give you a few seconds to think that, and then we'll take a vote. How many of you vote for A, family life? How many of you vote for B, separation from the world? How many of you vote for C, holistic lifestyle? And how many of you vote for D, humanitarian aid? There were some votes for all of them. A takes first place. Second question, what do you see as the primary threat that keeps Anabaptists from spreading Christ's church to those around them and from living as he intended? <clears throat> Us too. So A, self-righteousness. B, not dealing with sin. C, too much money. D, rejection of authority. Again, I give you a few moments to think which one you see as the primary threat to North American Anabaptist Church in living out Christ's intentions. How many of you vote for A, self-righteousness? How many of you vote for B, not dealing with sin? How many of you vote for C, too much money? How many of you vote for D, rejection of authority? I'm guessing a little bit, but again, I think A, um, 
is first place. Our third question, arenas of activity. Now it's you as an individual. What are you going to do? What's going to change from being here tonight? What arena of activity do you see that Christ has put a passion in you for to make a difference in his community? Is it A, leading a group of believers in worship in some way? Is it B, discipleship of new believers? Is it C, practical acts of service within the church community? Or is it D, compassionate outreach to the world? I give you a little longer to think about this. Which arena do you see as Christ having placed a passion in your own heart for? How many of you feel A? How many of you feel B, discipleship of new believers? How many of you feel C, practical acts of service in the church community? How many of you D, compassionate outreach to the world? This is exciting. You see all four of them get hit. I think C probably had the most votes for. But tonight we leave you with the question, what will you do? What difference will you leave tonight with in your own mind? So perhaps you voted for A. Maybe you're a song leader and you want to spend more time developing inspirational times of worship for your service. Maybe you voted for B. You want to disciple new believers and you're thinking about a mentor who made such an impact in your life as a young person. And you maybe could be that to someone today. Maybe you voted for C, practical acts of service in the church community. And there's a teaching position waiting to be filled at a local school or in your church's Sunday school that you could fill with enjoyment. Maybe you voted for D, compassionate outreach to the world around you. Maybe there's a kids club, a soup kitchen, a pregnancy center in town in which you could get involved with and you could help those hurting people around you. So we conclude, whatever your passion, whatever your gifting, God has a place for you within his community. What will you do? We are not naturally merciful creatures. We realize that in mercy, in forgiveness, there is a loss that we incur to ourselves. So as we pray together here in conclusion, I'm just going to acknowledge that. I'm going to confess that. And uh, I want you to join me in that confession as well. Please stand. Let's pray together. Father, we avoid mercy because we prefer our own righteousness many times. We prefer the autonomy that comes from not accepting mercy from you, not accepting it from other people. Please break this capacity of avoiding mercy. Bring us to mercy. When we do experience mercy, we, we often experience it, God. We confess in in this way that, uh, that's just directed toward us. We'd rather experience mercy than show it to others. I pray, Father, that you will encounter and break down 
this self-directed focus, this preference that mercy has shown to us. Help us, Lord, to extend mercy to those around us. And God, we acknowledge that you have built a community of mercy, a community that's purpose is to extend your purpose of mercy in the world. We'd prefer, again, that it's shown to us, or maybe that we show it to others, but help us, God, to participate in this community of mercy, of extending mercy, of showing it to others, of inviting other people into your community of mercy. So I pray, Lord, that you will inspire us and motivate us to show mercy, to have it shown to us, to invite other people to experience it in our community. We're grateful to you. We acknowledge your grace to us. We invite your mercy in our lives. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You're dismissed.